Welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode four, recorded on June 4th, 2017. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be with you again. And we have a great news lineup, but our first story is about Plasma 510 this week. And I watched the story with interest because as soon as it landed, I thought, is this the release that Joe switches to Plasma? Because it's a good one, Joe. It's got a lot of nice features. It's simple by default and powerful when needed. <laughs> very good, very good. Did it did it draw you in with their new uh, task manager configurations or folder view by default on the desktop? Well, put it this way, it's further improvement. There's no doubt about that. It's a lot of further improvement. It's a lot of things that they've improved. Yeah, the, the little changes they've made are definitely improvements and it's refinement and it's making it more and more stable and just better. However, the thought of it, it's like, I don't know, when you think about a really nice meal and then you have, you, you actually eat it and it's a bit of a disappointment because I actually did try it out. I tried out um, 5.9 first and then 5.10 and it, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to say it's bad, but I just, it, it wasn't quite as good as I remembered it being. And then going back to XFC, it was just like, ah, like, you know, putting in a really comfortable pair of trousers or something. It just going back to accessibility, that's what I want. That's, that's how I like to live my computing experience. And so as much as I admire what they're doing, it's not for me yet. It's very much kind of down the line, this abstract point in the future for me. I am impressed with every single release, how many things they've made nicer or better when it comes to the way the notification tray works or working with audio devices. But their work on future Wayland support, I think, has put them ahead of just about every other project out there. So one of the things that jumps out at me now that Kwin supports that I bet a lot of you would be interested in is scaling support when you have different levels of DPI support on your monitor. So if you have one monitor that's high DPI, so your laptop monitor, and then you connect an external display that is not high DPI, even if it's very high resolution, in, in X land, in the world of X, everything's going to be one resolution. And so your non-high DPI monitor ends up with everything huge. And now Kwin has baked in support for scaling at different levels if you have a high DPI and a normal DPI monitor. That's a home run feature for me. Yeah, it feels very modern. Everything about it feels modern, doesn't it? Yeah, and the performance overall is continuing to get better. I, I gave a little quick mention to the audio uh, tweaks that they made that I like. The audio volume applet now has a handy menu on each device, which you can click on, and you can choose the default. So for like headphones or speakers, so you can go to your you can go to your audio device, like I have hooked up to this computer we're recording on, and I could say use the headphone jack or use the uh, main speaker jack that I have my big speakers plugged into right there from the. Uh, system tray menu. I have a lot of positive stuff to say about it. It hasn't switched me yet, but I'm mostly positive on this release. Can I be a little bit negative about the audio stuff? Sure. So for you or for me, that's really useful. But for the average person, isn't that just more clutter, more options, more? That's something KDE's always criticized for, is there being too much configuration. And this just adds clutter, doesn't it, to what otherwise most people, they plug their headphones in to their laptop or they unplug them. So they're either on speakers or headphones. They don't have two different audio interfaces and a mixer or whatever. You know, it, it's, I can see why you really like it and it appeals to me definitely, but to the average person, not sure. It depends on how it's implemented. So if by default for the average person, they plug in their headphones and everything just works by default, 
then they nailed it. Yeah. Because you see, Joe, they've embraced the wonder of the hamburger menu. And so you have you just have a standard audio device list, but then next to the audio device on the right-hand side is the hamburger menu. And then you click that thing, and that's where you get all your extra crazy options, like which particular output device and whatnot. And that that almost might be a compromise that works. But this really is the opposite to Gnome and Unity RIP. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so aimed at power users who want to configure their system, isn't it? And they say simple by default. And for me, it's not really. I don't like all the animations. I don't like all the widgets and stuff. I like XFCE simplicity. But the, the thing is that I can make it that way. You can make it however you want. And I can turn all the animations off. I can make it really, really simple. Or you can go completely the other way. But it is almost sort of made for tinkerers. And when they say powerful when needed, that's basically them saying incredibly complicated if you want it to be. <laughs> okay. And so the question is, are the defaults sane enough for the average user? And I, I don't know where I stand on that. They, they're certainly not, for me, the defaults, because as I say, I have to turn all those animations off. But what, what do you think? Can you put yourself in an average user's shoes? It, to me, it feels like it's got a lot going on. It feel, it does have still have a lot going on, um, and I I I love it for it. I mean, I really do because for me, that's what I want, and I'm glad that there is somebody making a desktop that can try to be a little more distraction free, but at the end of the day, still gives me the ability to choose particular individual niddly settings. I think that's a great great perfect balance for power users, which I think is going to be the predominant. Linux desktop user. And I think it's going to make general Linux desktop more competitive. I think GNOME in particular now may have to respond to some of these nice features and at least consider how they could make their desktop more appealing to power users. But to your core point, Joe, I'm not so sure this is a great desktop for the quote-unquote totally new user. And I think that's probably why you still see things like the Mate project doing really well and and also uh, Cinnamon and others. There's still some, there is still a a niche out there. But I'm a pretty big believer these days that that's a niche of a niche, just the random new user stumbling into Linux accidentally. I think it's now full of people that want to get work done. They're pretty familiar with their options, and they just want something that works really well and gives them the features they want. I think there's going to be a good group of people out there that the Plasma desktop is going to be pretty competitive for. Yeah, and the Snap and Flatpak support is a good hedge as far as I'm concerned. Don't put all your eggs in one basket because who knows which one of them is going to win out. And the reality is it's Linux, probably both. So that's good to see that support in there as well. You're not even putting all of your eggs in one distribution basket. But for those of us that may be looking more and more at XFCE these days, and I include myself in that particular basket, there could be some good news, Joe. Yeah, on the XFCE blog this week appeared a post, the road to XFCE 4.14. And so it's been a long time coming, but it looks like they are starting to ramp up, seriously ramp up the move to GTK3 which is badly, badly needed. It's been on GTK2 for the longest time now, and it's starting to get left behind. You look at Mate, which has made the transition admirably and is looking really, really good on GTK3, and XFCE basically needed to decide whether they were going to do this or die. And I was really worried that they were going to die, but it's looking good. We haven't got much yet. We had the panel that was ported um, last week. Didn't mention that at the time, but now... There is at least a plan in place to to make this happen. So I'm really, really crossing my fingers. I just want this to happen. This transition is coming as part of the 4.14 release. Do I understand that correctly? Yeah. 
And so they're trying to get to a GTK3 minimum version of 3.20. And the reason why I mentioned that particular challenge is uh, in in the road to this 4.14 release, they've already had to shift the goalpost once because they were initially targeting GTK 3.14, which is very old now. And things have changed, things have broken in GTK since then. And so most distributions today are shipping with at least GTK 3.20. And so by the time they get this thing out, I bet you most of them will be running 3.22. Probably, yeah, because XFCE development is glacial, (laughs) to say the least. So it may even be uh, beyond that. I mean, we I keep hearing that GTK4, oh, it's only around the corner, and they're still stuck on two. So by the time they finally get GTK3 ported properly and working, GTK4 is going to be here. But as long as they can get GTK3 working, that's good enough for me, especially being an LTS and Ubuntu LTS user. I can get a few years out of it, and then hopefully this will spur them on to then target GTK4 next. I mean, that's a, a long way ahead. But XFCE to me, as I always say, is the perfect balance between features and weight. And I, as much as I am warming to KDE because I like all of the configuration options and stuff and because of the, the excellent Wayland support and all that and the fact that it's a very modern, forward-looking desktop, XFCE still is very good. And you know, you talked about potentially thinking about it presumably for your infrastructure, not not for your laptop or whatever, but for the studio infrastructure. Yeah, yep. Yeah, for the main recording systems, we're on uh, just before Joe and I even started, my GNOME system crashed on me, and uh, we had to wait for me to get my system back up. And our OBS system that GNOME Shell's on has been, uh, GNOME Shell's been crashing a couple of times a day. I'm a huge GNOME 3 Shell fan, but I've been having problems with it. And it seems like XFCE could be the perfect solution for these production systems. And in some ways, the slow glacial development pace is a benefit. Because it means that I'm going to have something that is pretty solid in production for a few years. And it's one of the reasons why I also kind of just like good old Debian in some ways, too. But what about Mate? Hasn't that somewhat rendered XFCE irrelevant? I almost feel like it's too much. If I'm going for that utility, accessory, appliance-like installation, it almost feels like Mate is too much of a desktop for me. And it is... At that point, well, if I'm going to run a full desktop, why not run the latest full desktop, the most modern full desktop? And that was why GNOME 3 came along. But we started with Mate, had a few problems with some, a couple of little itty-bitty stability things, a couple of graphics issues, but it wasn't, it wasn't bad. In fact, we ran it in production for a year in the studio. And then it was only later as we started using the machines more and more for more things and more people, even people that don't normally use Linux, started sitting down in front of these computers to use them. We realized, well, if we're going to have a full desktop environment that has all the bells and whistles, let's just run GNOME Shell. Now, that's sort of emerging as a sort of a standard desktop. It was sort of a quote-unquote forward-looking move, (laughs) I admit. And um, it just didn't really play out because at the end of the day, I realized I don't need that on any of these systems day to day. When we had everybody here in the studio working on the computers, it made sense. But now that it's just the regular crew, it it really was way too much. And I feel like Matei would still be way too much. Well, I'm sure Wimpress is crying into his headphones listening to this. (laughs) <laughs> no, I, you know, if, if I was going to do, I, I only run one type of Mate, and that's Ubuntu Mate, and I mean it. 
I mean it. I'm, I, I, I've tried it on Arch, and I'm a much bigger fan of the implementation on Ubuntu Mate. So you can put that on a poster. Yeah, it is tightly integrated. It's If you've got someone who's a key player in the Mate project running his own distro, then you know you're going to get the best of it. Yeah, it's great. So speaking of distros that might be well-positioned to feature a desktop, Fedora 26 is coming out, and that's going to be a great desktop featuring GNOME Shell. Fedora always is. You're just going to have to wait a little bit. Yeah, delayed as usual. Uh, about a month at the moment, by the looks of things. There's not much to say. It's it's expected, isn't it? And <laughs> when I spoke to Matthew recently on Late Night Linux, we agreed that it's the kind of distro where you don't just push it out at an arbitrary date. You wait until it's ready. Not quite to the extent that Debian does, but it's a nice compromise, I think. Why push something out that's not ready? Just because you yeah. agreed to do it on a certain date. I so agree. And uh, also congratulations to Matt. Uh, June 2nd was his third year anniversary, I believe, somewhere around there, of being the uh, the guy that ran on the Fedora project. Somewhere. It's like he's He's got to set a record now, I think, at this point. So that was a good chat if you guys haven't uh, checked that episode of Late Night Linux out. Um, I guess a couple of things hanging up the uh, beta at this point. So because the beta is hung up, the release gets hung up, you know, it's a domino effect. There are some issues causing RPM hangs after updating to a glib 2.25. And, of course, you can just go check the bug list if you if you care. Okay, so let's talk about Coreboot. And that project has joined Conservancy as a member project. So Coreboot, as you probably know, is the free BIOS or EFI replacement, which I suppose is most commonly found on Chromebooks, kind of ironically, given hmm, yeah. uh, Google's love of proprietary stuff as well. And they've decided to join Conservancy, who will look after not the kind of day-to-day code and stuff, but more of the administration that goes around it. And I can see why they'd want to do that, because that kind of stuff is just a real headache, and you just want to get on with coding and testing and the actual interesting stuff. Yeah, and they say, uh, this is Patrick, which is one of the long-term contributors to Coreboot. He says, by joining the Conservancy, Coreboot benefits from the project's uh, organization in terms of not just like how to structure your project. Here's some of the files and papers and things and I's and T's you need all that, but they also take care of community organization. And I think that's probably a key part for people that just want to focus on code. Don't have to worry about the legal stuff. We want to have a great community. We want to have a healthy community, but we're so busy writing code. We can't really manage the community. If the conservancy can help that too, that could be really, that could be really great. Thanks to Ting for sponsoring Linux Action News, last.ting.com, las.ting.com. Go there to support the show and get $25 off a Ting device. If you bring a device, and you might want to do that, they have a BYOD page, you'll get $25 in service credit, which gets applied to your line. Average Ting bill is about $23 a month. It's pay for what you use wireless. If you've got a family, it's great. So it's $6 for each line you want on the family plan because it's sort of a family plan. It's just pay for what you want wireless, and you can just use it however you want. So I've got three devices, one for myself and two other family members, and it's like 37 to 40 bucks a month depending on our usage. Everywhere we go, we've got Wi-Fi, so I hardly ever pay for data. I treat the mobile network like backup signal, and I use Telegram for all of my text messaging, so I pay nothing almost nothing unless something breaks and I get a bunch of SMS alerts. And that's what's beautiful. Like I had a busy month, my Linux Fest Northwest month. It was like a $34 month for me. (laughs) 
<laughs> and then, you know, I go back and maybe one month's like 23 bucks, depending on what's going on. It's pay for what you use wireless and you're in complete control. You get all the information on their dashboard in your app and they have great customer service. CDMA and GSM, just get started by going to last.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Linux Action News. So by now, it's pretty clear that Linux has dominated almost every market apart from the desktop, but <clears throat> let's not talk too much about that. It's uh, dominated the server market and cloud and Internet of Things and embedded devices, Android, that kind of thing. And now it's looking like it's going to break into the automotive industry. I was initially a little skeptical when I saw what is going on here, but this is the Linux Foundation's automotive-grade Linux project, and they're celebrating their first big-name user. Toyota announced this week that they're going to employ automotive-grade Linux in their 2018 Camry model, which means that the infotainment dashboard system will be running Linux. And this is a big name. There's other big names in there, though. Mazda's in there. Uh, I think Ford is in there to some degree. Uh, there's uh, there's some other good names in there, but none of them have really shipped anything yet. To Toyota is one of the really originator forces behind this big effort, but it is a foundation project. And think of automotive-grade Linux as essentially a Linux distribution for a car. It's, it's mostly an 80% solution. The manufacturers of the car modify the OS to match their branding and their look and their display setup and their, their accessories. And they write, it seems to be about 20 to 30% of their own code, depending on who you go by. But the whole idea here is to provide them with a base 80%. And that is, I, digging into this, that is a massive amount of things. It is a Linux system that uses Wayland, that interfaces with devices over the CAN bus. It's very sophisticated. And there's hopes for this to spread beyond just the infotainment system, aren't there? They seem to be really trying to design something that can control a lot of the car's environmental systems, lighting, sound, all of it. And they are already showing examples of that. Uh, they had a big showing at CES this year where they where they had a, essentially a car dashboard using the actual car CAN bus and DC power and real peripherals and, and fans that would be in like the air conditioner. They showed how you could run it all using Linux with automotive grades essentially stock example interface that the manufacturers can modify. And it wouldn't necessarily like control the timing of your engine or the charge of your battery, but it could go pretty deep. You know, the, the, the position of your chair, the memorization per user and things like that. Well, they're going to want to keep that engine stuff completely proprietary, aren't they? Otherwise, how are they going to hide their uh, emission test stuff? <laughs> hey -o, that's probably true, Joe. But you know what it really solves is that the car manufacturers are not the world's greatest software manufacturers. And what they've been sort of coalescing around right now is QNX and then blobbing on different proprietary components to achieve what they want to get to. And the sort of commonality feature set like over-the-air updates and uh, things like that have been missing because they're all inventing their own stack. And this is trying to solve that particular problem, which I think is pretty cool. They don't have things like over-the-air updates yet. Maybe the biggest attraction is automotive-grade Linux, at least at present from what I can tell, and I've reached out for a comment but I haven't heard back, is I don't believe they support Android Auto or Apple CarPlay. Yeah, that was something I was thinking about because now with Android Things, I mean, I know that's designed more for smaller things like thermostats and stuff. But why wouldn't you go for Android as a solution? Because that's almost kind of drop-in, isn't it? And, and then you, you're more likely to be able to work with other Android devices and iOS. 
My sense is, having looked at this project a bit, when I deep dive, they have a a pretty good wiki. And you, as a manufacturer, there's a lot of information you need and there's specs you need and and there's all all kinds of uh, things that you have to consider when you're building that they just lay out and document for you with automotive-grade Linux. And I suspect that because particular nature of communicating on the CAN bus and the security requirements and working with different interfaces and working with different accessories like knobs and controls on the steering wheel, I bet you it turned out to be more straightforward to build something based on Linux from the ground up than to use Android. Plus, then you don't have that Google strategy tax. Yeah, I suppose. (laughs) You have to feel a little bit bad for Canonical in all of this, though, don't you? Because that's kind of the market, not specifically automotive, but certainly embedded systems. That's kind of where they're putting all their eggs now. You're right, although I suppose you could probably deploy some of this using Snap Packages or using something like Ubuntu Core to to uh, run the core operating system. So there could be room for them still to play in this. Uh, going back a bit, though, I don't know if the market's going to care about Apple CarPlay or Android Auto. I think it, some of them might. It's getting more and more, maybe more and more traction these days. It seems like something, though, that automotive-grade Linux could add on with the right deals in place. It doesn't seem like the system inherently prevents it. And an open source base where they complete about 80% of it, digging in there means you get things like multi-architecture support, people auditing the security, people working on patches to Wayland. They're going to be hiring a contractor here very soon to go in and uh, add additional code and support for in Wayland. <laughs> you get real good con- contributions back upstream by having something like this go across industry. And they've got in total more than 90 companies involved with this thing. Yeah, let's hope that they get the package management sorted out and the upgrades organized properly so that you're not ending up with insecure cars out yeah, there. Yeah, it's on their roadmap. So that gives me that gives me some hope, but we actually have to see it happen. All right, well, let's talk more about Android to an extent. And Andy Rubin, who was, am I right in thinking he was the actual founder of Android in the first place? Yeah, him and his team, yeah. And and he worked at Danger. Yeah, b- before Google bought them, yeah. Yep, correct. Yeah, he has announced a new company, Essential, and a new OS, Ambient OS. And so basically they've got a phone that is almost ready to ship, which is just stock Android, and has attracted a lot of attention for reasons that are a little bit baffling. But we'll get back to that. But what's more interesting to me is their smart home platform, which is Ambient OS. And it's going to be, he doesn't like to call it an Echo competitor, but let's face it, it's basically an Echo competitor. And the fact that we might get a proper open source version of it, albeit more Android throw it over the wall style open source, if that succeeds, that's got to be better than what we've got with um, Amazon and uh, Alexa. That does seem like a long shot. Ambient OS is a bit of an unknown. I assume it's Linux-based, but that's just me kind of taking a guess. And we've got hints that it's it's going to be open source and they have solutions to prevent people from not updating and things like that. It looks nice. It's, it's like a puck that's angled upwards with a touch LCD round screen on it. So it combines – it's a really nice-looking version of like a – of an echo in a tube with, a, with an LCD screen. Well, yeah, it's like that – Echo, what's the Echo with the screen that's... um, Echo Show? Yeah, it's kind of the best of both worlds to me. Because you don't want a big stand-up, basically, tablet with a stand, do you? Otherwise, you just use a tablet. 
I have to I have to note the timing of all of this. I do not think it's a coincidence that Andy Rubin is up on stage making a big deal about a pre-production cell phone and about a pre-production home assistant. I think these two things are more related than it seems. And I I have to acknowledge that tomorrow is WWDC. Yeah, where they're almost definitely going to announce the Apple Home or whatever they're going to call it. Yeah, Siri in a tube. And its key competitive advantage over the Echo in a tube is going to be the fact that you also have Siri in your pocket and the two can work together on location stuff. And it's, it is more useful to have the same two things in your pocket. It's the same advantage that Google Assistant has once it gets rolled out across enough devices and people buy the actual tube. And I think that's why Andy Rubin's on stage right now talking about it because by, come Monday, it's going to be obvious old news to everybody else. Yeah, that's the key thing here. He has to deliver this quickly because the phone, let's circle back to the phone, right? That is uh, basically a stock Android phone. I think it's going to have an unlocked bootloader. So it's kind of in the OnePlus territory. Um, you know, the, the OnePlus 3T is the current one. The OnePlus 5 is coming soon because they've decided to skip four. It does seem nice. It's got titanium around the edges. It's got a ceramic back. It's got a full glass front. I mean, it's, it looks like a nice stock Android phone. And it's not that expensive, is it? It's, well, I mean, it's expensive to me, $800, I think. Um, kind of quite steep. I think it works out in the, in the States, it's slightly less than a Pixel. Yeah, which is well overpriced as far as I'm concerned. It's basically iPhone territory, which is just ludicrous. But there we go. But what makes it interesting to me, I suppose, apart from the aesthetics of it, which do look nice, is this modularity where it's got, well, he described it as wireless USB-C or USB-3. Yeah, he said it was a 60 hertz USB 3.0 wireless chip. Yeah, and, and two metal contacts, which are magnetic to provide power for things that need it. And the, the only accessory they've got now is this 360 degree camera, which looks a bit, well, you're going to look like a bit of a prat, aren't you, walking around with that strapped to your phone. If you could get some very small things like extra storage, Maybe, but um, again, no headphone jack. I mean, he's he is trying to be Pixel iPhone. He's trying to go in at the top of the market. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, he tries to use his new market advantage to say this is what gives us our edge because he says because we don't have large scale, we can do things at manufacturing that are so new that the bigger guys can't do at their large scale. So we can do nanotubes and we can do things that are are really unique that only work at 100,000 devices. And we'll then just scale up the manufacturing as our sales scale up and we'll be able to stay more competitive that way. But he, he's totally failing to acknowledge the reality that every other smartphone OS and every other smartphone manufacturer and every other smartphone player has to face. It doesn't matter if he's running stock Android or if they somehow decided to port ambient OS to the phone one day, which he doesn't think they'll ever do. He thinks it's perfectly fine running Android. He probably would. He helped create it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, where, what is the end goal here? What, what, are you, what are you going after? You're going after the Pixel, which barely sells? You, mm. you really have to be going after the Samsung S8, I would think. Which is just not going to happen without serious carrier support. Right. And this is, the same, this is the same thing we've watched Canonical go through, the same thing we watched Mozilla go through. It, this, is, this is not a new story. And it will be interesting to see if Andy is successful here. It, or... Because this will be telling. If he's very, if he if he's able to find a niche and he's able to push forward with an ecosystem of accessories that magnetically snap on, home assistants that compete with the Echo, and a phone that competes with the Pixel, and he seems like 
he's got some good ideas behind him. He he's all about publishing the spec, so they're going to publish the spec of the wireless USB and the magnetic connector. They're going to they're going to work to try to make as much as much of this stuff open as possible, like their ambient OS. If I was going to buy an Android phone, I might want to buy a phone from a company that has his philosophies. That seems appealing to me, but it still seems like such a a, a long haul. And they're already under a little bit of fire. Well, you know, I've mentioned this already, but you're talking about taking on Samsung or even Google. To me, I don't think that's what the play is with the phone. To me, it's very straightforward. It's an attack on OnePlus because OnePlus became successful with no advertising, just word of mouth, because they had a high-spec phone for a very low price. And it was running Cyanogen OS, which was essentially stock Android with a couple of tweaks. And then they fell out with them, and now they've got Oxygen OS, which apparently is quite good. I don't know. I haven't run it for a long, long time. Is it an attack, or is it just a step aside, kids, and let us show, you, let the adults show you how we do this? Oh yeah, okay. Attack is the wrong word. A, a market attack. You know, they, they're not going to badmouth them or anything like that. But it's they're going to try and sell as an American company. I'm sure it's all going to be made in the Far East, but rather than being a Chinese company, now I'm, I'm not trying to be um, anti-American here, but. I think the reality is that a lot of a lot of Americans would rather buy an American phone than a Chinese one. I would generally agree with you. However, it doesn't seem to have changed the market at all because the I, I, unless I'm mistaken, and I probably am, isn't the only phone the I can't think of. There's no phone manufactured in the states, right? I can't think of any phone that's manufactured in the states anymore. No, I wouldn't have thought so. But if you're going to buy an iPhone, then it's designed in California. Right. At least it's owned by an American company. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And I suppose so. This is an American company. And yeah, so that's true. I think, and this, this is wild speculation, I think that they're going to basically try and go after the OnePlus kind of market for people who want stock Android and no bloat on their phone or whatever. And that is going to finance Ambient OS and this home device of theirs. And I think that that is the real play here because phones, I mean, as he said in this interview with Walt, phones are kind of yesterday's news really mm-hmm. that they have already that market saturated and assistance and ai and machine learning and all that stuff is is the new hotness and so he's trying to get into that but that is a very expensive and complicated world and industry to get into as mycroft have found out and although he has got quite a lot of vc funding behind him to actually establish the brand and and shift some units of something even if it's just a phone, might convince them to invest more and might build the brand. And and so that to me seems to be the end goal of his is to, to get this home, this Echo competitor to be a mainstream device, which is, is lofty ambition. And okay, he did create Android, but not as we know it now. It was, if you look at what he created, it was pretty terrible, wasn't it? Compared to what we've got now. Yeah, and so, some of the deals that he created to to make the operating system successful, I think, are why, why we are where we are at yeah, with Android. Yeah, so uh, yeah, he's, he's clearly a, a sharp businessman, and he he can present pretty well on stage and, and in public. So, so, I, so Joe, is the thing to take away from this that the lady in the tube is the next big market? That's the that's 2018's big competitive market. No, the thing to take away from this is that the big tech companies think. The lady in the tube is the next thing. They all want more information, and they think the lady in the tube is the next best way to get that information. Well, the same way they thought that wearables were the next big thing, and that has just not happened, has it? I've got one, and I I wear my watch all the time, and it's found a niche market. But unlike with phones and then tablets, which, again, are declining now, 
they have tried to create this market and they've, they've pushed really hard with it. But how many people have bought an Echo or an Echo Dot and been enthusiastic asking it the weather for a few weeks, a few months, and then eventually they get annoyed with it and either forget that it's there listening to them all the time or just unplug it and stick it in a cupboard and definitely don't buy the new version of it. Maybe I'm being cynical here, but for me, it's it's what they think is the next big thing because they, they can't sell any more phones to people because phones have got good enough now. Why do I need a new one? Unless it unless I drop it, sort of thing. Yeah, you're probably right. I uh, I find mine to be pretty useful, and I I've stuck to it. So I I think if you get the right use cases, they can be. But I yeah, bet but your you... your use case is niche, man. Like running a studio with it. Okay, you, that that's very very niche, and I'm sure people will find uses in an industry and stuff. But it's not going to yes. be this mass consumer device. I don't think. Right. Right. Well, I think you're right. I would say it's going to be much more successful in industries. Um, and that's huge. That's a huge market that should, probably shouldn't be underestimated. Uh, but I, I kind of think that a lot of this smart control stuff is going to start getting baked in over the years. So you won't have to get a $25 AC outlet that uh, has a Wi-Fi chip in it that then your Echo uses. It'll just start getting baked into the TVs and the lamps and the light bulbs. And then it's nice to have one thing instead of having to have five or six different apps to turn these things on and off. I know it, unless you've tried it, I know it sounds crazy. So I'm going <laughs> to shut up right now about it because I know it sounds ridiculous. I thought it was ridiculous. You know what I think is ridiculous? That an accessories manufacturer is trying to stop Andy Rubin's attempt before they even get off the ground and launch a single product. Yeah, I mean, this is... Uh just someone wanting a, a paycheck isn't it at the end of the day uh Spigen, i think is the company they make some phone cases and stuff and one of their brands is essential uh, it's such a generic word that even if they do win or settle out of court it's, it's only going to be well, a couple of hundred thousand dollars maybe or you know maybe a tiny like one cent on every device sold which might add up for them and so fair play to them but i don't think it's going to stop andy doing what he wants to do Andy wants us all to call it the essential phone. You see how he did that? Essential? Yeah, yeah, that's clever. That's clever. We'll see if it goes anywhere, though. Yeah, it's it's definitely one to watch, and there's been a lot of hype about it, so we couldn't ignore it. But uh, Yeah, and Ambient OS could be another Linux-based OS that could be open source, so that's something else to keep an eye out for, too. Yeah, definitely. Well, that'll just about wrap up this show. I would like to remind you that you can subscribe to the Linux Action News by going to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all of the ways and also linuxactionnews.com slash video if you would like to subscribe to the video feed for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you like that cool visualization, um, some people do. And also linuxactionnews.com slash contact for various ways to get in touch. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. And I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you guys next week. See you later.